You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Hi, good morning. Hey, y'all look great. You really do. You look great. You look excited. Are you awake and ready for class? Yeah? All right. We're going we're gonna to get going here. Now, let me just introduce myself. My name is Ruthie. That's all you need to know about me, really. Um, and I work for the Assemblies of God, which is a part of a larger movement in Christianity, which is called the Pentecostal Movement. And our, uh, our organization serves as the official archives. We are the largest repository of Pentecostal documents, historical documents, anywhere in the world. And so as such, people travel literally from around the world to study with us in our research center. A matter of fact, this week when I get home on Wednesday, I am hosting the family of the general superintendent of Iran who will be with us all day Monday to go through some historical documents that we need uh, to get some clarification. What an exciting job, huh? Yeah, well, that a lot of this got started when I was a little girl. I grew up in church, went to church every Sunday with my family, and when I went to kindergarten, I met people who said they went to church too. But I said, no, you don't. I've never seen you there. And this opened up a whole new world to me, that there was church outside of church. And then I was so blessed to have teachers who gave me an incredible gift. They taught me how to read. And so, you know, I'm driving around my little town there, Sealy, Texas, and I'm learning to read. And I see these other places, and I, I start reading these other names, like Catholic and Methodist and Lutheran and a barely big one, Presbyterian. And they were all churches. And I didn't understand how come I didn't know them because I went to church too. And so from the time I was a little girl, I've had a fascination with understanding why people believe the way they believe and how they, that developed and all of that exciting stuff. Anybody else a real nerd like that? Okay, you guys, I like, you are my people, my tribe right here, right here. Now, in this church, how many of you by chance have been in this church less than five years? Okay, that's a huge percentage of you. And you know, if you're going to join a, a church or really any kind of group, you need to have an idea what they're about because there's some weirdness in this world. Yeah, 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 there is. And so it's important that you know something about the place that you're coming, that you're bringing your children. So this is LifePoint Church. And it's part of a movement within Christianity, specifically this is part of an organization called the Assemblies of God, which is part of a larger movement called the Pentecostal Church, which is part of a larger movement, which is part of a larger movement. Anybody confused yet? Okay, so let's, let's just real quick, let's, let's just have a wee bit of, of history lesson. 
The church began in the scriptures, a man by the name of Jesus Christ lived in the first century, first century Palestine, and he claimed to be the embodiment, the actual incarnation of the logos, the, the source of all things, God himself in flesh. Now, as he was walking on the earth, um, God accompanied his ministry with many convincing proofs that what he said was accurate. Now, he, he was arrested, crucified by the Roman establishment in, in cohorts, um, cahoots, that's the word, <laughs> cahoots. I'm from Texas, okay? He was in, they were in cahoots with the religious establishment. And then on the third day after his death, he rose again, was seen with convincing proofs by more than 500 people at one time, as well as many others. And he commissioned the, his followers to go into all the world and to make disciples, people who would follow the teaching that he had given them, and that he would change their lives. And so what we have beginning, that's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the very first history book of that movement, we actually have copies of. Did you know that we have actual copies of the very first church history ever written? Anybody know the name of it? The book of Acts, absolutely. The Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this church began, and we get 28 chapters of the book of Acts telling the history of, of, of these early Christians who were doing everything they could to follow what Jesus had taught them. And for some reason, some people think that when Acts 28 closed, that that was the end of church history, but that's just the end of that book. The Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit has continued throughout history. We're just in like chapter 2342. That's all, it's still part of the same book. And so what happened is you had one church and these people went out into all of the known world, particularly around the Mediterranean and the Roman Empire. And they started converting other people to this way of life. And so they were one church in many locations. And as they got together and made documents and, and hammered out what the church would look like and how it would work, they called themselves the church universal. But they used a word that means universal. Anybody know what that word they called themselves was? Catholic. Yes. The universal church. One holy Catholic apostolic. And that was how they described their church. And so, but if you have ever been in a group of people for any amount of time, you'll find that it comes that somebody gets upset with somebody else. Yes? Yes. And so what happened is by the time we get a thousand years into this whole movement, somebody got upset with somebody else. And then that person that they got upset with said, well, I'm just as upset with you as you are with me. And there was then a split within the church. And so we had the Catholic church 
And its headquarters was in the western part of the world, and so it was known as the Western Church. And because its headquarters was in Rome, it eventually came to be called the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the church that split from that in, in the, the 12th century, the church that split from that said, okay, you all may be the universal Catholic Church, but we are the Orthodox Church. Now, if Catholic means universal, Orthodox means right. <laughs> and that's how church fights often go, right? <laughs> and so the Orthodox Church is still with us today. It's known as the second branch of Christianity. And the Orthodox Church, typically we think of them as a geographical church. And so we have the, the um, Greek Orthodox, right? The Russian Orthodox, the Coptic Orthodox, all of these wonderful churches, particularly in the East, but there's many of them here in the Western world. And so for a long time, then about 1,500 years, then uh, we had the Catholic Church and then the Orthodox Church. And then in the 16th century, the 1500s, there was a man in the Catholic Church, and he was a priest, he was a leader in his town, he taught at the university, and he began reading the Bible, and he noticed that some of the things he read in the Bible seemed to be different than what the church of his day was teaching. And so he said, you know, I think we should get together and discuss this. And so he made a list, because this is what you do when you're a teacher, right? You make lists of things that need to be discussed. And he made a list of 95 things that he felt the church of his day should talk about. And so he put them on the bulletin board there at the university where he taught in Wittenberg, Germany. And he stuck them on the, the bulletin board thinking, we'll all get together and just talk about these things. What poor Luther didn't know was that he had inadvertently started the third branch of Christianity, which is known as the Protestants. So we have the Catholic Church, the universal, then we have the Orthodox Church that's right, and then we have the Protestants who just protest things. <laughs> Always looking, is that right? Is that the way it should be? And go ahead, Gina, with, the, um, we're, with where we're going on this. Um, we're going to talk this morning about what it means to be Pentecostal, which is what this is part of. But give me the next slide there, Gina. What Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation did, and there were many involved, not just, just Luther, Zwingli and Calvin and Tyndale and, and Knox and, and many folks, is that they called the church of their day to an understanding that the church should teach the same thing the apostles taught. Nothing more, but nothing less. And so the cry of that reformation was sola scriptura, to the scriptures alone. And so the Protestant Reformation then called out to the Christian world of the 1500s, 1600s, 1800s, that the Word of God is central to the understanding of what the church is and how it operates. Now, in the early 1900s, early 20s, actually we'll talk about tonight, this really got its impetus going in the 1800s. But there was a, a group of people 
who were part of the Protestant church. And as they looked at the scriptures that they had been called to and taught, they looked at them and they began to evaluate how it is the church should operate. And as they did that, they, they started noticing, just as Luther did by going to the Word, that the church of his day was not operating as the Word of God said it should. These people looked at the Word of God and they said, the church is not operating as it should. We seem to be missing something. And so this little group of people became known as the Pentecostal movement. So let's take this next one because what the Pentecostals did was they took that Protestant principle and they just injected it with a little bit of oomph and understanding of this. The church should not only teach the same thing the apostles taught, but they should experience the same thing the apostles taught, experienced. Nothing more and nothing less. And so if you want to ask what is a Pentecostal, what some religion, uh, uh, sociologists of religion call a, a fourth branch, is that this is in its nutshell. Pentecostals, of which this church is one, Pentecostals believe that what God did in Genesis and Joshua and Matthew and Acts and Ephesians is how God is still working in the world today. In other words, at its core, Pentecostals teach and believe that what God did then, he continues to do. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can look at what he did in the scriptures and not just say, well, that was for them back then, but we can believe that we can experience what they experience today. So if we are going to be Pentecostal people, then we need an understanding of what it means to be that. Because see, this, this little movement began, it's, it's a fairly new movement within Christianity. We're only 100 and we're roughly 30, 40 years old, all told. But if we are going to continue to function in the fullness of everything that God has for us, there are some things that we must steward. Do you know what it means to steward something? It means to take a responsibility for its health and its continuance. And so I'm going to give you three things that in looking at the history of the Pentecostal movement as well as the scriptures, there are three things that I believe that it is imperative that we steward into the future. Now, in order to steward something, you have to first take ownership of it, right? Yeah, so here are three things that we must be and then we must intentionally steward and pass on to the next generation. And I am a firm believer that if you take any one of these three things out, we cease to be Pentecostal people. So you want to know what they are? 
all right, that's, I, I love it. He's got his notebook and his pen. He's like, yeah, yeah, I want to know. I'm just like hanging on it. Okay, the first thing, go ahead, Gina. The first thing that Pentecostalism is a stewardship of, and this is absolutely non-negotiable. We must steward biblical teaching. From the beginning, the first Pentecostal church, which we see born in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, we see a description of this church this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There are some that accuse the Pentecostal movement of being extra-biblical. By extra-biblical, we mean outside of, of biblical understanding. But we got the idea for how we behave from this book. It wasn't a matter of somebody had an experience and they thought, well, I wonder if I could justify that from the Bible. They, matter of fact, we'll talk about this at Jesus School tomorrow. They were in a Bible study looking for how can I know that I have, have found the fullness of what God has for me. And they went to the scriptures and then began to pray into their lives what they read in the scriptures. It is imperative that we are people of this book. Because this book is the timeless truths of God. And if we think that we can just run around having some sort of, I want to be spiritual and I want to do this, but it is not grounded in the word of God, we don't have what God has given us. Now, in the assemblies of God, of which this church is a part, when your pastors had to take a little test, believe it or not, they make them learn a few things before they just say, okay, you can go down to Ames there and, and you know, they're just not yahoos. They, they had to take at least one test, right? And in that test, they, they had to, to sit down and write out what are the basic beliefs of this church. The very first of those the foundational belief on which the others hinge says this. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it is our, listen to this great line, our authoritative rule of faith and conduct. Did you get that part right on your test? <laughs> authoritative rule of faith and conduct. What a great line. What that simply means is, we believe that this book is inspired by God and as such, it has the authority to tell us what we believe, rule of faith, and how we behave, conduct. And so as Pentecostal people, our understanding is that this book is the basis of our understanding of how God has revealed himself to us. And when we find something in our lives that doesn't align with this book, we don't change the book, we realign our lives. And if we get away from that understanding, we will, as a Pentecostal movement, be subject to every whim, every fad, and every fancy that brings itself along in the culture in which we exist. Yeah. 
which as we all know, culture changes with time. What's in yesterday will be out tomorrow. What was popular then, what was bad then will be good then, what was good will be bad. That's just culture. It's how it changes. And as Pentecostal people, we have put a stake in the ground that this book is the authority for what we believe and how we live. Now there comes a problem. If this book is the authority for what we believe and how we live, if we don't know what the book says, that makes it very difficult to incorporate into our lives. And so as Pentecostal people, truly Pentecostal people, you know what we love? We love Bible studies. We love it. We're just like, oh, I can't wait till he preaches. Oh, this is going to be great. You're having a Bible study? Oh, man, I can't wait till we, what, what are we doing? I want to read it ahead of time. And this idea that, that the, the book is just something that is off to the side brings us to the place where Martin Luther found the church of his day when he called them back to an understanding of the word of God. Now, in the early days of the Pentecostal movement, we came under some real criticism with an understanding of, of this word. In the early days, there was a, a, a great revival that took place out in California in an African-American church, and there were some very strong feelings in some of the other churches about what was happening at the Apostolic Faith Mission at 312 Azusa Street. And so many of the pastors got together and there was, was some very real questions that they had about what was happening in this church. The pastor's name was William Seymour. And two of the criticisms that they had for Seymour was, number one, Brother Seymour, we believe that you are taking the scriptures too literally because he was teaching that what you read about in the Bible you could experience. And they wanted to bring him in line. Brother Seymour, what you read there was for them then. You cannot appropriate that, appropriate that to yourself and your congregation. The other accusation they had to Brother Seymour was that some of the things that were happening in his church as they were having this revival, people were doing things that they hadn't been doing in some of the other churches, speaking in tongues, experiencing healings. And they were seeing this and they said, Brother Seymour, you're getting outside of the word of God. And so one of the great things with working where I work is we have access to all of these things. So Gina, the next slide. In the Apostolic Faith, which was Brother Seymour's, uh, the church newsletter that he sent out, this is, is from the June to September issue of 1907, where he addresses this issue to the pastors around him. He says this, we are measuring everything by the word. Every experience must measure up with the Bible. And we have evidence that Seymour followed that because there were things that some people came into the church and they started doing some things. And Seymour, as we have his, his, his writings where he stopped this and cut this out, encouraged this, encouraged that. He says, we are looking to the Bible for our experience. We are people of the book. And then he addressed the other issue was that Brother Seymour, you can't apply this to yourself. And he says, some say that is going too far. 
But if we have lived too close to the word, we will settle that with the Lord when we meet him in the air. In other words, if we have taken the principles of this book and we've tried to live too closely with them, we can trust that God is going to let us know and bring us into alignment. These were people of the word. Now, in that point, we are the same as, as every other Protestant church, sola scriptura the importance and the value of the word of God as our rule of faith and conduct. But Pentecostals add another layer. And so next slide there, Gina. Because as Pentecostals, we don't, we don't just steward the word of God. We must. It is the basis, the revelation of God. But here's, here's the problem. If all you have is an understanding of the Word of God, and you can go to Bible studies, and when I was a kid, we had a thing called Sunday school, and we got little pins when we memorized all the verses. Some of you guys remember that? You got a sticker, you know, and then you'd get a prize. You, you got a, a little uh, whatever the teacher didn't want from her house she brought, and you got a prize, and it was great. And you, know, you can learn all of those things and be able to quote the Word of God and have information of what the Word of God has said. But if the Word of God just informs your way of living, and it has principles for living that will help you to be successful, it will help you to understand how to have a marriage that lasts, how to raise kids who are actually decent and clothed and in their right mind. It has information for you on how to, to manage your money. It has all of this good information. But here's the issue with us as fallen humanity. Our problem is, that we don't, is not that we don't have enough information. Our problem is not a lack of education. Our problem is that we have a messed up soul. And so we don't believe you just need information. You must also experience transformation. So when you come to church, yes, we want the preaching of the word of God, but if it stops at just information, it is of no more value to you long-term than the Bhagavad Gita or the little fortune cookie or the Quran or the writings of Confucius. Because if it doesn't change your life, it has not accomplished its purpose. And so as Pentecostals, we go beyond just sola scriptura, and we go and we add to that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritus es solas. We want the power of the Holy Spirit. Because see, not only was that first Pentecostal church described as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says in the next verse, and everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Pentecostals are in the book and then we expect that to change our lives. Now, in the Assemblies of God, go ahead, Gina. In the Assemblies of God, our ninth general superintendent, Thomas Zimmerman, made a statement that I think is really apropos here. He, he gave an illustration. He says this. 
The Holy Spirit is the river, okay, moving, living water, is the river, and scripture is the banks. Okay, you, you following me? He says, now if the river, the moving of the Holy Spirit, gets outside of the banks, there's great damage. Have you ever seen a river get outside where it's supposed to be? Mm -hmm. we, we live close to, we've seen a few floods in central Iowa. It causes great damage. In the Pentecostal movement, has there been times when we have claimed this, an experience of the Holy Spirit that wasn't in line with the Word of God and done damage to people and to places? Yes. However, the danger is when we see something go outside of the banks that what we do then is we just dry up the river in order to keep it within from causing damage. And that's what he says next. He says, but if the river runs dry, if the moving and functioning of the Holy Spirit ceases to exist, then what good are the banks? It will help you to live a good life, but it will also lead you, if, you, if the word of God, which is a two-edged sword, does not have with it the moving of the Holy Spirit, building in you not just the gifts, but the fruit of the Spirit, there have been those who have taken this book when it's not accompanied by love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, and they have cut people to shreds. We need the Spirit of God. See, the Holy Trinity of our faith is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who moves within us. And so as Pentecostal people, we come expecting to see the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a dead religion, it's a living reality. And as Pentecostal people, it is imperative that we steward this. And that's why your pastors oftentimes will intentionally leave time in a service or set up a time outside of what's regular to say we want to experience the power of God in our midst. Because we are living in a time when it is going to take the transforming power of God for us to do what God has called us to do. So go ahead, Gina. So as Pentecostals, we have to have the Word and the Spirit. Now, I was in uh, Lome, Togo a few years ago at cataloging for West African Advanced School of Theology. And, I, and one of the books I pulled out to catalog was an encyclopedia of religion, which is always fascinating to me. And I did what I typically do first. I turned to P to see what they said about Pentecostals. Because some of them say some really good things, and some of them are just crazy. And this particular book that I opened up to Pentecostal, this was the picture to represent the Pentecostal movement. And a few years ago, I was at an academic symposium in Cleveland, Tennessee, and I thought, while I am in Appalachia, 
Um, I have never experienced a snake handling church. So I thought, when, a, when an apple at you, you know, what, are you, what else are you gonna do, right? <laughs> so I spoke with a professor of church history at Lee University in Cleveland, and I said, could you direct me to a snake handling church? And he said, well, it's illegal in Tennessee, so I won't encourage you to go here, but there's one about two hours away in Alabama, and uh, I've got the pastor's phone number if you'd like to call and see if you could attend a service with them. And so I thought, well, this will be fun. And so I called the pastor and told him who I was, and I was in town, and, and, and did he have a service that was open that I could attend? And he said, well, most of our services are closed to the public, and there's reasons for that. They've been exploited. Uh, he said, but uh, there is services, um, usually at least one Friday a month, that we invite guests. And I said, oh, when is that? He said, well, there is one this Friday. And I thought, glory to God. <laughs> And I said, what time? I will be there. And so I, I, got, I, I left early so I could get there. I didn't even stop to eat. I just bought some lunch meat and bread and chips ahoy. And I'm in the car eating my food. And I get to Alabama. I got there early because I, I was excited. I wanted to see uh, what was going on at this church. And folks started to come in. And it, and it must have been bring your own snake night because folks come in with boxes, with snakes, and, but it was okay if, like me, you had not brought your snake. They had some on the platform, so they would share if you didn't bring one. Now, I'm from Texas, and in, in elementary school in Texas, we learn, we are taught, part of the curriculum, how to identify good snakes from bad snakes, because that's, that's how you live down there. And so I, I know my snakes, and I promise you, uh, what I saw there was timber rattlers, copperheads, and water moccasins, cottonmouth. And so I talked to the pastor as we was going in, and he said, now, we only take up the serpent when the spirit moves. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, but I also began to pray for the spirit to move, because <laughs> I really wanted to see this. Now, I had intended on sitting in the back, but the pastor took me up front, and he showed me they had a duct tape line that went across the altar area. And he said, now, we don't take up the serpent past this line. And I figured, well, the snake knows his line. So I sat on the second row so I could see what was going on. And we started the service, and, and it was just your typical Southern Pentecostal church. And it, it got cooking. I mean, it was happening up in there. And the pastor went over at one point, and he pulled off the plexiglass lid on the box there on the platform. He reached down, and I promise you, he pulled up about three copperheads. And there was an audible, ah, in the service, and everybody else got their snakes out. And so they were passing snakes and singing. They had inside the pulpit a little jar of strychnine that they passed around that you could drink from the jar of poison. They pulled out a propane torch, you know, that you'd hold in your hand, and they'd oh, get that torch going and just stick their hands and their faces in it, shouting glory to God. Now, when I got back to Lee University the next day and went into the sessions and somebody had heard that I had gone out, they asked me this question, are they Pentecostal? And I said, well, they have a scripture from the Bible that justifies what they do. And they have an experience that 
I would say is supernatural. It certainly isn't natural to me. But there is one thing lacking in this very small branch of the Pentecostal movement. And if you have questions on the history and how this got started, just grab me afterward. But there's an issue of something missing. Did you catch when I called the pastor and asked him if I could attend a service because I knew that many of their services were closed? And here's what's missing. They have a scripture. I think it's misinterpreted, but they have a scripture. They have the experience. I watched it. I mean, the pastor himself told me he'd been bit 16 times. He said, one time I stopped breathing, but I started again, so we just went on. <laughs> Although he has had people die in the church. But what is missing is the mission of God. See, God did not give us his word. He did not give us his Holy Spirit so we could get together and have Pentecostal picnics he gave it to us so that we would partake of and then serve the bread of life to a lost and dying world. See, God is on a mission to redeem a lost world and he invites the people to join him. He gives them the understanding and the revelation of who he is and then he empowers them to do that mission, explaining and exposing and being an example of who he is. But we get into trouble when we wanna take the word of God and the experience of God and just get together and have some few chills and thrills and talk about how we know what is right and they on the outside are just taking this country to hell in a handbasket. Bless God, I'm glad we're not like them. That is not Pentecostal. Because the third thing that we must absolutely steward, the word of God, the experience, the moving of the spirit, and the mission. Because we also see this church in Acts chapter 2 described thusly, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Not those who were, by, by, not those who were being chilled or thrilled, but by those who were being transformed by the power of God. This is the heart. This is the heartbeat of Pentecostalism and we must steward it. I have said many times the only church fight worth having is the fight to stay on mission. Everything else is peripheral. When this particular church got started, the Assemblies of God, go ahead, Gina. In 1914, some of these early Pentecostals got together in Podunk, Arkansas, Hot Springs, at the, at the Hot Springs Opera House and Saloon. The first meeting of the Assemblies of God took place in a saloon. Our first general headquarters, by the way, was in a converted brothel. I love that. I love that. They believe that if God could convert people, why not places? Why not take the place that people would come and, and, and get messed up and convert that and get them fixed up 
and on mission with God. So they met, about 300 of them, in April of 1914 and formed the Assemblies of God for the purpose of giving structure to, to the, the implementation of the mission of what God was doing. J.W. Welch, one of our early leaders, said this, the Assemblies of God exist for no other reason than as a mission equipping and sending agency. Now, they had so much fun in Arkansas in 1914 that they got together again in Chicago in November of that year for the second general council. And at that second general council, there was a brother that stood up and said, Mr. Chairman, I would like to make a resolution. Have you ever been to a church business meeting? Yeah, somebody's always got a resolution. <laughs> and he said, Mr. Chairman, this is directly from the minutes. Mr. Chairman, I would like us to make a resolution that the Assemblies of God commit itself to the greatest evangelistic movement the world has ever seen. And they went to prayer because in those days before they voted, they all went to prayer. I mean, they got down on their knees and they actually went to prayer. And when they came up, unanimously they said, we'll sign our name on the dotted line. We exist for the greatest evangelistic movement the world has ever seen. Now, in 2024, we're used to this kind of language. This is the kind of stuff that you hear on, on late night infomercials, right? This is the greatest thing, it'll change your life. Just order this, you know what I'm saying. But for these people, and, and looking at this, I'm gonna take off my preacher hat for a minute and put on the historian hat. For these people, we have to ask, was this just some, some dream, some exaggeration, or was it a God-inspired vision? All I can tell you is that historically, you have to go back to the first church in the book of Acts to find the kind of explosive growth that we see that came out of this movement. In 100 years, these 300 people in Podunk, Arkansas, became 67 million worldwide. That has no, no comparison anywhere else in church history. 300 to 67 million in a hundred years. And here's something that you need to understand about this movement and the Assemblies of God in particular. Only 5% of us are in the United States. 95% of the Assemblies of God is outside of the United States. We are a global church. You are not a part, part of something that's just Midwestern white folks getting together. This is a global community that is growing and exploding in Latin America, in Africa, in the Far East. We are a global community because people who knew the Word of God and had experienced its transformation said, I will get on mission with God. Pastor, we have time for one story. One story. Y'all still with me? Okay. Give, give me, tell me where, oh, this is a great story. I change this each time and I don't always remember which story I put up there. In 1952, a young boy 
by the name of Mark Bliss came from Pennsylvania. He felt the call of God on his life. He left home, moved to Springfield, Missouri to attend Bible school at Central Bible Institute in 1952. The year after that, a young lady from New York by the name of Gladys Helm also felt called to ministry and she also left New York and went to Springfield to attend Central Bible Institute to prepare for ministry. While they were there, this is what happens sometimes in college, they met and discovered that their, their goals and their passions matched up. And they thought, well, you know, you're running for Jesus. I'm running for Jesus. We're running in the same direction about the same pace. Want to run together? So Mark, at Christmas 1953, got out a piece of purple construction paper and a silver pen, and he wrote a big old heart. And he wrote in there, would you join your life with mine for the furtherance of the kingdom of God and the good of this world? And would this be the motto of our life and family? The love of Christ constrains us. And then he wrote yes or no circle <laughs> and put a little line at the bottom. And Gladys got that little Christmas card and she looked at it and looked at Mark and she circled yes and wrote her name, Gladys Helm. They were married in June of 1953, and God blessed their marriage in 1956. He gave them a little girl by the name of Karen, and in 1958, a little girl by the name of Debbie. And in 1960, a call came out that a lady who was working in West Africa, Liberia, Florence Steidel, who had a leper colony there in, in Liberia, needed some help. And Mark looked at Gladys and down at the kids, you know, Mark Karen was four, Debbie was two, and he said, you want to move to a leper colony? <laughs> and she said, the love of Christ constrains us. And they took Karen and Debbie and they went over to Liberia with Florence and they started to raise their little girls among the families of the lepers, building up this colony and encouraging people and, and leading them to the knowledge of the love of God. In 1965, another call came. There was a small group of Armenian believers who were living in Tehran, Iran. And they called the Assemblies of God. They weren't Assemblies of God people, but they contacted Springfield, Missouri, and said, would you send someone to Iran to teach us the word of God? See, part of the struggle of this little Armenian church was that because they were in a primary Muslim society, evangelizing was, was a little difficult and they wanted some help in knowing how to do that. And so the Assemblies of God sent out a call, is anybody willing to go to Tehran and open up that country for the Assemblies of God? And Mark looked at Gladys and said, you, you wanna go to Iran? And she said, the love of Christ constrains us. So they went back to the States and, and got things together and got on a boat for a 60-day boat ride with two small children. Now, I don't like to take small children to a restaurant, <laughs> let alone 60 days on a boat. But they did. As a matter of fact, they enjoyed the trip so much that by the time they landed in Tehran, little Mark was on the way. 
And so they land there in 65. They meet this group of Armenians and begin to reach out to them and teach them. They start writing correspondence courses, learning the Persian language and, and writing things and getting, getting Bibles brought in. And they needed a Bible school built and they sent out the call. And the Bible school was built, by the way, by an African missionary from Iowa by the name of Morris Plotz. Anybody ever heard of him? Okay, so yeah, Sandy's going, ah, I know Morris, big feet. And they were serving God. The church was growing there in Iran. And there was one young man in particular that had a burden to evangelize, even though he knew that it had some costs. His name was Hike, Hike of Sepian. And he and his young wife, Takush, had just had their first little baby. He was about six months old. And on October 24th of 1969, Hike and Takush uh, were at a meeting with other pastors, and they had, I believe Mark was preaching, and they had asked Hike to interpret. And, you know, he's, he's 24 years old, and he's interpreting. And while he was interpreting the message, he told Takush that evening, the Holy Spirit just engulfed me. He fell to his knees weeping, and he could sense the Lord asking him, Hike, is there anything you would withhold from me for the sake of the gospel? And he said, nothing, Lord. I'll give you anything. The next day, Hike, Takush, and their little baby, uh, who was six months old, got in the car, uh, speed the light vehicle, first speed the light vehicle in Iran, got in the car with Mark and Gladys and their three kids, and they went out to look at the, the a property in Gorgon, Iran, where Hike wanted to plant a church. And so they were driving, and they came to a small village that Hike and Mark had previously been arrested in. But they also wanted a church there, so they stopped. We'll stop and have a prayer meeting, and then we'll get back in the car. So they had a prayer meeting, which went a little longer than they had anticipated. By the time they got back on the road, it was really dark. And so this is October 25th of 69. Mark is driving, Hike is in the front seat, Karen in the middle, and then in the back seat, of course, Gladys holding baby Mark, and then Debbie and Takush and their baby. And they're driving down in the dark, and as they rounded a corner, a car came at them with its brights on, and Mark couldn't see. And one of the things he couldn't see was that there was a tra tractor trailer stopped in the middle of the road with no lights. Mark Bliss hit that tractor trailer full head on. Instantly, all three of his children were killed, along with Hike and Takusha's infant son. Is there anything you would withhold from me? God had asked him. Gladys did not regain consciousness for several weeks. When she did wake up, Mark had to tell her that she was no longer a mother. In the meantime, he had to arrange for the burial of the th their three children. In the Pentecostal Evangel, Charles Greenaway wrote the article telling the Assemblies of God what had happened to their missionaries in Iran. And he quotes the letter that Mark Bliss sent to tell about the accident. And it's accompanied by a picture of the, th the three graves and, and people gathered there outside of Tehran. And Mark Bliss said this, he said, I have never felt closer to the heart of God who gave 
his child for me. And then he said this, he said, I am trusting that I have planted three seeds in the ground that God will soon grow into a harvest for his kingdom. Mark and Gladys continued, as did Hike and Takush. They continued to serve in Iran and build the church until 1979, which when many of you remember, the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, had uh, overthrew the Shah of Iran. How many of you remember this? Huge world news. Huge world news and established the Islamic Republic of Iran. All missionaries were kicked out of the country. Matter of fact, Mark Bliss got out two days before the hostages were taken in 1979. Many of you remember that. They left their church in the hands of young men like Haik of Sepian. Haik of Sepian led those churches through the, the growth of the Islamic regime under the Ayatollah. And many of them lost their lives. The Persian Bible was outlawed. It became illegal to have church. You could have church service if you did it in Armenian, but you couldn't do it in the language of the people. And you could not evangelize. They were forbidden to. Matter of fact, in 1992, the Ayatollah, uh, his successor, demanded that every Christian church that still existed in Iran write a sign-off on a letter to the United Nations stating that they had full religious freedom. Every single church leader signed except two, the Church of the Brethren and the Assemblies of God. Instead, Hykovsepian wrote a letter to the United Nations inviting a task force to come to Iran and see whether what they were being told was accurate. He became a marked man. 30 years ago last week, January 24th, Hykovsepian left his home to go to the airport to pick up someone and never returned. He was later found in a park, 27 stab wounds. The regime kept his body from his family for two weeks before they ever notified them. In the meantime, they buried him without autopsy and then invited his 19-year-old son to come to the police station to identify pictures of his father's body. Yet today, this is recent news. We know that statistically, if you go and look it up, Google um, fastest growing church in the world, Guess where the fastest growing evangelical church in the world today is? It's in Iran. Three seeds planted and watered by the blood of the martyrs. The second fastest growing, at least before recent events in Afghanistan, was the church in Afghanistan led primarily by Iranian refugees. What does it mean to be Pentecostal, Scott? It means to have a commitment to this word and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Revelation says this. It says, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What does it mean to be Pentecostal? We must steward, Pastor. 
the teaching of the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. We must steward, intentionally providing an environment for the moving of the Holy Spirit so that lives can be transformed. And then we must prepare for the mission. Not all of us will be called like Sandy over here to leave the country and go to, go to kids that just need a grandma to love on them in the Dominican Republic, but some of us will. The question was asked, the Assemblies of God for many years was not sending missionaries into Afghanistan. Yet I can tell you as a mom, the United States felt very free to send my son to Afghanistan. And the Assemblies of God ask itself this question. Can we request any more of our young people than the United States government does? And we developed a program to send young people into the most dangerous places to get on mission with God. Because there is a lost and dying world. And we have not been giving the, given the word and the spirit so we can just have picnics together. This is where we gather, but this is not our purpose. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.